Good morning and welcome to this BJSM podcast. My name is Brooke Patterson and I'm delighted to be hosting Professor Lorimer Mosley and Dr. Ebony Rio today. Both are experienced physiotherapists who have worked in elite sport and performing arts and have held many roles in the university sport and industry sectors. They've both made an incredible impact on the way we think, assess and treat pain. Lorimer's work has focused on persistent pain in a variety of populations from low back, spinal cord injury and medical conditions such as endometriosis, just to name a few. And if you're a clinician and you haven't read or heard of the classic book Explain Explain Pain by Butler and Mosley, then I probably wouldn't admit that to any of your colleagues. Um, Ebony, she's a world-leading tendon pain expert. And when I was trying to put together a bit of a brief intro for both of you, I was really struggling. Uh, so I'm going to welcome you. And if you could let the listeners know what you're, you have been up to recently. Thanks, Brooke. Uh, I'm a pain scientist, neuroscientist um, at the University of South Australia. So what have I been up to lately? Well, uh, work-wise, uh, I guess we're still moving moving towards uh, our, our vision, which is a broad, probably very unrealistic vision that no one has chronic pain anymore uh, in a way that's not helpful for them. Uh, but we do research at both ends of, of what we would describe as a translational pipeline. And at one end, we do experiments on humans, uh, on live humans, uh, and we call that systems neuroscience. So we might, uh, we might deliver a, a painful stimulus uh, to them in different circumstances and, and see how we can change what it feels like, what happens in their brain when, when we do that. And then we do, uh, we're ultimately trying to find new treatments. And when we find new treatments, we turn them into things we can implement in the clinic. Then we test them in clinical trials. And if they work, we try and roll them out in implementation studies. And then right at the very end of that is work I'm involved with, with Pain Revolution. And Pain Revolution is a charity uh, organization that looks to upskill and up knowledge or up know. Uh, around pain, modern pain science and pain care um, across the community. Sounds very busy. Are you, <laughs> yeah, full-time research at the moment? Are you, yeah, doing any clinical teaching? Yeah. Yeah, so I do. Uh, I see three to four clients a week now. Other than that, I run a research group. We've got 135 in our research group here called Impact in Health. Um, the, the pain-dedicated researchers are about 40 of us, and so it's a full-time job. Uh, I guess, being involved in some of that work. And what about you, Ebs? What's your current role? I've just started a new role, actually, Brooke. So I'm the Senior Clinical Research Fellow at the Australian Ballet. And uh, what that means is I, I, I'm i so lucky. I'm involved in running their research and I also get to work with the dancers clinically, which is really special. And I also work at the Victorian Institute of Sport. So I still have a mix of clinical and research in my role. Thanks, Ebs. Yeah, you're definitely living the dream. So let's get into the nitty gritty. Lorimer, um, we could chat about a lot of different things, I think, but um, let's narrow it down a little bit to talking about persistent pain in elite and recreational athletes. I know you were at the IOC committee um, meeting on managing pain in elite athletes recently. So kind of what's the the update? What do we know and where do you think the field's heading? Yeah, <clears throat> thanks, Brooke. Yeah, so I guess 
probably about one fifth of the client work I do is with elite performers uh, across sports and other high performance areas. Uh, and the IOC committee on the management of of pain in elite athletes. Um, my role there was primarily primarily around persistent pain in elite athletes. Uh, and I guess what a couple of things came out of that that I think uh, are really important within the high performance space, but they they are therefore very important across uh, everything down, you know, sort of recreational industrial athletes, as you mentioned. And and really the key messages there, I think where we're at is that we're starting to embrace um, the principles of assessment, understanding and treatment that are broadly captured in the biopsychosocial model uh, in a way that we can integrate them into a performance context. Uh, and the, and I think, you know, different areas of, of our field are at different stages of that. And it was really interesting in this committee to see clear differences across countries, across uh, sporting codes uh, and across organisations. So we're all at different points of that journey. But one thing that was really consistent, it was this recognition uh, that uh, chain, progressing the way we deal with pain in an elite performance context is really helpful for changing how we deal with pain across the performance hierarchy, if that makes sense. And there was a, a really strong sense of working working together across specialties to give a coherent understanding of how we might be able to uh, to embrace, I guess, to exploit all these groovy developments in the basic sciences. Um, now, even since that meeting, we had a couple of manuscripts that came out of that, and uh, I, I led a, a group on non-pharmacological management of persisting pain in elite athletes, and uh, that was quite funny because uh, there's sort of no other way to manage them other than non-pharmacologically. But um, even since then, I would say the, the field is acceler accelerating so quickly and there are, are people engaged right at the interface of, of cutting-edge neuroscience, neuroimmune science and psychological science uh, and performance. Uh, and I mean, it's great that you've got Ebony on here because uh, Ebs really is one of those people that is is at the very pointy end of bringing cool science about how the human works into a performance dedicated and performance relevant space. I agree. And I love how integrated you were talking about performance and pain because we actually can't, we, we can't ignore either, you know, in, mm -hmm. in, the business of elite sport and high performance, you know, they're, they're all about performance, but there's almost this, there's often an expectation actually that they're going to be in pain, in, in some sort of pain. And then, you know, when it starts to impact their performance and their life, you know, how much is too much. And yeah, it's, it's so integrated, as you said, but I'm so excited, excited that neuroscience is, you know, emerging. Yeah, I agree. And, I love it. Uh, you, know, I had, um, you know, we sort of see it at the coalface with everyday humans. It, like it's almost, um, I was thinking a bit more deeply about your, your first question, Brooke, and the, um, how pain and performance relates to 
the elite space and to the everyday space. And I reckon there is definitely two-way traffic in in learning from and applying the learnings from each of those ends of the spectrum. Because in some ways, the non outside of elite sport, recreational sport, in some places, they're just way in front, actually, of how to manage some stuff. And that might be because there's not this this really acute driving pressure for performance in the recreational athlete they do it for recreation so they they're doing it within the context of their humanity and that is you're starting to penetrate performers and surprise surprise you see performance benefits when you when people start hanging around as though they're they're integrated unified humans and that you know that's exciting from an academic and i guess a personal perspective yeah that's a great point and um, I could listen to you two just probably talk to each other all, all day. So I don't know if I really need to be here. But <laughs> <laughs> um, so what I'm kind of hearing is, you know, gone are the days where we're just, you know, managing pain to get back to returning to play. It, it's really even at the the elite level, obviously performance is a thing, but certainly for a lot of amateur athletes, they're there to, you know, potentially for social reasons and staying healthy, but most people love to improve and and perform well. So we're really talking about all athletes here, um, which is great. Um, I'm keen to hear from you, Ebs, in terms of, you know, your area of specialties obviously being tendons. Um, are you seeing that pain is associated with performance in, in your athletes clinically, but also the research? Oh, it's a really good question. So, you predominantly use your tendon as a spring, which means our really good springy athletes are more prone to um, having tendon pain. And in fact, it's called the jumper's knee paradox that our best jumping athletes get patellar tendinopathy. And I think it's that whole competing demands between, you know, performance and they still have pain. And tendon pain is a funny one because it can be a bit grumbly at the start, but it can warm up really nicely, which means they can often um, perform, you know, very well. And that can be difficult because they can sort of stay in this cycle, actually, and that can be hard on them hard on them mentally. So there is a relationship um, between pain and performance in that our high performers, you know, tend to be more at risk. But there's also a more negative relationship as well where where pain and dysfunction can certainly impact their performance. So it's a, it's a very complex space, which is why it's a really cool space to be in because it's never boring. <laughs> can I ask Ebs a question, Brooke? You can. <laughs> Thanks. So uh, I yeah, you know, Emily, that I've I've been intrigued by the 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 behaviour of pain in people with tendinopathy for quite a long time because it it doesn't fit very nicely into some of the patterns that we are more used to, um, and and particularly this idea of it we use the phrase warming up, right? Uh, it starts off and it's yeah uh, in in my language, and if we use not not the language I own, in the in the language that I, that I subscribe to, and the and the paradigms of pain that I'm most comfortable with, I would say when they first start mechanical loading in that session, their brain produces pain and probably some other feelings around their knee. Uh, it produces thoughts and and other broad feelings, and then if they keep going, those uh, aversive feelings, pain, other things, thoughts subside um that 
process, how much of that process aligns with a change at a tendon level during that time course? And I guess where I'm going is, I mean, you, and this won't be unfamiliar to you, Ebs, but uh, I'm going to that idea of of us grasping everything else that's happening in in that human during that first 20 minutes of mechanical loading. So much is happening in that human. When when we mechanically load the, the tendon, because we don't really know a lot about the nociceptive driver. As you said, Loz, tendons are a little bit unusual. So we do have, you know, this what we'd call warm-up, only to be worse the next day. If we think of about what might be contributing to the nociceptive or what might be a nociceptive driver in a tendon, if it needs to have, it's a mechanical stimulus clearly, there's probably also some other, you know, things that will stimulate the iron channels. And it's it's possible that those iron channels are saturating within that period of time and that might explain some of the the changes in the human and their perception of pain in that time. Um, so it's a it's a really interesting. I think this changes at all the levels, you know, including the the spinal cord. I think there's it's just it's phenomenal what goes on when someone's running and jumping. I think the running part of it is really interesting because there. Um, I can't remember who were the lead scientists in this, but in the in the sort of eighties and nineties, last millennium. Uh, there was there was a whole lot of interest in identifying central pattern generators for ambulation, walking and running in the spinal cord in cats, right? And they there were researchers who were able to, I'm, I'm pretty sure, able to train a cat with a complete spinal cord lesion to walk again, all right? Um, through reinforcement, some other thing, and and they said, here's proof that there is a central pattern generator, so a a generator of the commands for locomotion outside of the brain of the cat. Uh, And that's all remarkable and, you know, obviously we're not cats, but uh, I I wonder if, um, like we we do know that, that rhythmic, uh, commands can be monitored and produced uh, at reasonably deep levels of that sort of motor axis, corticomotor axis, possibly spinal, right? Uh, and are associated with as many projections to the dorsal horn as they are to the ventral horn. Uh, and those those projections to the dorsal horn, we don't have any other explanation than m- modifying uh, danger production or nociceptive discharge. So I just, you know, you talked about the, the spinal cord. May, maybe these things happen all over the place. And uh, as soon as, like, I can imagine the evolved, like we're so evolved in my view, that as soon as the human has to walk uh, or more to the point run, the the system that evolved to inhibit nociceptive input during running would have been more likely to escape the lions and reproduce. And I wonder about that as well, that um, whether that sort of the the pain, the aversive stuff that happens initially would take longer to fade if it wasn't running they were doing, you know, it was some other 
behavior that is not sensibly related to escape in some way. I don't know. So it's so interesting. So Jamie Gator, sorry, Brooke, we've totally hijacked. Sorry, uh, Brooke. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's fascinating. It's fascinating. <laughs> so ja- Jamie Gator had a, a quite an evolutionary um, perspective on the warm up phenomenon for exactly that reason. Uh, you know, right. you, you actually need to warm up quite quickly because you need to get away from the tiger and your tendons are critical in getting you away. Um, so we can, you know, inhibit. Uh, in this profound way because we need to get away quickly and our tendons are predominantly involved in activities that would get us away quickly from a tiger, our running, mm-hmm. our jumping, all of those things. So mm-hmm. uh, I, I totally relate. It's bringing back memories of a grumbly Achilles when I was playing. So yeah. Is this because it's, we're it's, talking about it? Are we yeah. provoking your Achilles? <laughs> yeah, yeah, my irons are going off. Um, which I guess, yeah, follow-up question in terms of for clinicians, I guess, if we bring it back to the athlete and the clinician dealing with this athlete who are potentially in that, you know, I've just got to get this warmed up and how do you ebbs kind of have that conversation with that athlete um, so they're not just in this cycle? It's really difficult. It's one of the most common questions that I get, particularly around, you know, you know, pulling someone from competition. And obviously it's just always a team decision with the athlete at the core. And so you know, big picture things, what's the context of how important this competition is, what's the end goal, you know, are we aiming for Paris and this weekend's, you know, tournament is not as important. So sometimes there's some of those conversations. And Brooke, because the tendon warms up, often it's not their pain severity. It's often because the tendon, the impact of their tendon pain, it's often taken away what they're good at. So tendons are a spring and our really good athletes, you know, good change of direction. And what it can impact is is their performance. So they're able to participate, but it can impact that really high level ability to get in and out of a contest. And we had a fantastic master student show with um, some subsequent injury data that you actually might be at more risk of other injury. So you don't necessarily stop because your Achilles hurt, but you can't get in and out of a contest and you might get a concussion. So the the discussion around whether to continue is is really complex and really individual, but it's it's often less about their actual pain severity because they can they can not always sometimes it is their pain severity, but sometimes they can continue. It's more around their ability to do what they do well. Yeah, and for the clinicians, what kind of measures, I guess, could people use for performance? And yeah, do the athletes have a good grasp of that themselves? Or yeah, what kind of objective things do you often use? So for lower limb tendons, um, comparing hop left and right can be something that's quite useful to look at in terms of you know repeated vertical hops. Um, the tendon will tell you twenty four hours if it's happy. So you, your pain doesn't need to be low and stable. Uh, sorry, can I start that again? Your pain doesn't need to be zero. And so sometimes it's really good to have that conversation with people so that you can sort of manage expectations of coaches and, you know, the athlete, of course, and sometimes parents. If you can maintain a low and stable pain, that's actually a happy tendon if it's highly loaded. Um, almost regardless of the symptoms that you might have that might fluctuate during the day. So 24-hour response is really important. And then my other objective measures would also be around 
uh, keeping people, you know, as strong and as capable as they could and avoiding, you know, that sort of boom bust that we would with other persisting pain. We want to keep our loads really sensible and really organised. And Laura, with elite athletes, they're often, you know, they really like the testing and the data and they're really kind of sometimes over-analytical you know, understanding your 24-hour pain, like at what point is that actually sometimes harmful to be constantly like, okay, what's my pain out of 10 today? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a, a, I I agree that's a real, I think that's a real challenge. And some of the, some of the experiences I've had have been, uh, have showed an extraordinary hypervigilance to the numbers that, uh, or, or to the test result. You know, like the daily, we're going to do a daily test retest. And then that becomes everything, everything's hinging on that. And my, you know, even a very simplistic understanding of what neurons and immune cells do when they're activated, they, they get better at being activated. That's one of their glorious properties. So if you, anything you're, you're running a lot, then the neuroimmune networks that, that run that, will become more easily fired. That's just a basic principle of neuroimmune biology. Uh, so I think the the point you're observing and speaking to there is something that we all have to be really, really vigilant to because there are, there is great value in some metrics, I, I reckon. And, you know, I'm not an exercise physiologist, um, but gee, I valued working closely with Darren Burgess around the, these things, uh, both within and, and pre-season of getting the balance of the metrics that will inform us as with, with as little uncertainty or as, as much certainty as possible about the state of the tissue uh, and don't go more than that <laughs> because uh, then uh, we really, I think we really undermine that, that human's inbuilt capacity to protect itself and to balance protection with performance. And I would see those two things as competing demands self-protection and performance are at one level always going to be in in competition i reckon um you know i think of one example i remember working with an organization where an athlete had posterior thigh pain persisting posterior thigh pain that we would conventionally say had a had a chronic hamstring problem um but part of my intervention in that club was to say well we've got no evidence to support that diagnosis Right, the metrics we have say that hamstring does not have a problem, uh, but what we absolutely know is that you've got pain in the back of your thigh, and so let's call that a posterior thigh pain problem. Right, so that'd be one intervention. Uh, but as part of the evaluation of what what's going on for this human in this context, um, in this journey of return to play that's been greatly extended and it's costing everyone, you know, a lot of stuff. I gave him a little clicker that people use when people are going in and out of festivals and stuff like that. So you know how many people are in the field, you know, those little clickers. And he kept it in his pocket and I said, you know, don't tell anyone, but if anyone asks you, how's your hamstring, just click it, all right? And in the next three and a half hours, he looked at it, it was 119. So in three and a half hours, he'd had 119 questions. There was only 70 people in the, in the club. Right, so there must have been at least some people who were asking multiple times in that. And his response to that question, his response to that question had always been, oh, "It's still a problem. It's not quite right." And my intervention in that context with him was to say, "Well, you've got no evidence to support that statement. Uh, 
what you have strong evidence for is that you're adapting and you're you're on the pathway to recovery. So every single time you get asked that question, just say, oh, I'm adapting, I'm on the pathway to recovery and and change the internal conversation. Because otherwise, 109, well, it was, so it's probably 200 times a day, he's running neuroimmune networks that are promoting protection of the back of his thigh. And the only way the brain knows how to do that is to change motor outputs and give him a feeling. So that's pain and performance, right? Yeah. And Ebs, yeah, did oh, you want to add anything? And I guess, yeah, any other, like for clinicians, like what's what's helpful and what's not helpful in terms of messaging? Yeah, I, I love this conversation because I think what you've raised, Brooke, is really important that it's so individual, you know, putting some structure around how how often you'd get someone to record and clinically, you know, if I'm asked to see someone and they bring in a spreadsheet and it's, you know, 519, I had six out of 10 pain and 621, I'm like, radio, let's, let's <laughs> rein it in. And so, you know, sometimes it's, it, it is definitely about reining it in and, and making sure they're not hypervigilant and I'd say more often than not, that's the case actually in sport that, that you're, People are self-testing with tendons. They're often poking them. So the education is stop poking it. Again, with what Lorimer said, it fires off your neurons. It just reminds it that it's a bit sensitive and it just keeps it kind of, keeps it sensitive. It's unhelpful. So I think it's really important that we don't promote fear and hypervigilance. And often to speak to Lorimer's point, it's actually the people around them as well. And I have had people at a club when I've suggested you know, not to perhaps ask about their injury. People say, well, what should I say then? I'm like, you could just say, how are you? Um, <laughs> and so sometimes people don't want to um, be seen as uncaring. You know, they're actually genuinely interested and they want to know how someone is. Um, but when 119 times in three hours, someone's asking about it, it's it's certainly unhelpful. And do you have any tips for clinicians who might not feel that confident in explaining pain and any resources um, for how they can kind of incorporate that into their treatment? I use Lorimer. So do you know what I get people to do? I get people to watch um, Lorimer's TEDx talk on his snake bite. And I get them to watch it once through just because it's so engaging and it's it's fantastic and it will blow their mind. And then what I do is I steal a little tip from Lorimer that he gave me. I get them to note down um, something that um, really resonated with them. I get them to note down something that surprised them and then something that they call bullshit on. And then what that does is that gives me a talking point for when I speak to them about what their understanding is. They'll bring a level of their story to the story and then we can sort of work out where they're at and where they want to go. Lorimer? That's <laughs> oh, very nice to hear that, Ebs. I feel, feel very chuffed about that. Um, I like that. Uh, I I'm, don't know if you got it from me, Ebs, but I really do like the the idea of when you give, when you give your patient some sort of resource, give them a task to do with it uh, and that idea of, of come come back to me with these three things that Ebs mentioned or we do with with the written resources so with explained pain for example I would say to patients um, to come back with a salad 
And the salad is that you need to uh, highlight or note something that surprised you, which is what Eb said, something that made you angry or annoyed. That's the S-A. Where you got lost. That's the L. Something that applied to you and something you disagreed with. And that's the salad. Uh, and come back with that. So we'll we'll go to each color or however they've done it. Um, but the, to speak to the first part of that question, Brooke, um, I, th- I think it's the most common inquiry I get from healthcare professionals is around how do you explain this? You know, and we we know we, our research group. Back to your very first question, we're dedicating a lot of resources to that that question. How can we uh, increase the self-efficacy of healthcare professionals, the ability of healthcare professionals, uh, and I guess empower them to own the modern science around pain, performance, recovery, all that sort of stuff, in the same way we own the bioma- biomechanics. You know, or the um, stretch loading principles. You know, we own that stuff, and in some ways, it's it's no more complicated. It's just what we've been familiar with the whole time. So, I guess my answer to to your question would be, uh, because all of our patients are unique, actually, uh, and we, all of us, are unique. I think the best strategy is to understand that stuff as well as you possibly can. Understand what there is to know that's relevant to your work as well as you possibly can and practice explaining that to people. And why don't you practice outside of a loaded clinical context when someone's well-being's on the line? Explain it to your mates, explain it to your family, explain it to your cat. And as soon as you start explaining it, you'll realize, actually, I don't even understand what I'm saying there. And you have to go back and understand it more deeply. And I mean, everyone... Uh, every healthcare professional I speak with who's who's embarked on this journey uh, with intent, with the same intent that you embark on when you want to understand all the other stuff we do for our work, then slowly they they become really good at conveying understanding about critical matters and they develop a whole lot of tools in their toolkit and they start having different kinds of conversations. And so I guess, how do you do it? My answer is always, well, get your head around it. And then you can do it like and everything else. I, I love that, Loz, because you're right. You don't you don't get it right. You don't get it right the first ten thousand times because you mm. do realize actually I'm just regurgitating that. I don't really understand it. I need to go back. And the other thing that I find really useful, Brooke, is for clinicians is have a couple of different ways of doing it. Have a couple of different stories. Immerse yourself in the resources that are available online and and written resources because the different analogies, one of them will stick with you, but more importantly, one of them will stick with your patient. And it might be an opportunity one day, you know, I had an athlete at the Commonwealth Games who said to me, I don't know if this is a thing, but as much as my knees hurt going into competition, on competition day, they don't hurt. And I said, that is a thing. And let me tell you the science behind it. And she was so excited because she thought she was a bit weird, but it actually gave her, um, it, it was able to genuinely put her life in in some clinical sense, but also be backed by science. And she was actually really excited and really open. That was the right moment for her. Other people had tried at home to talk about pain and she just took away from that they think it's in my head and that's when we've not got it right when people leave the conversation thinking that 
Yeah, I agree. I think we also, Brooke, have this, when we're first starting to engage with the, what I would say the fearful and wonderful complexity of, of the human uh, and trying to think, how do I integrate that with my clinical care? I think a first, a, a first barrier is thinking that there's a set of knowledge that we could articulate as an intervention alongside our current way of working and and thinking, and it, it in my view that's not how it works. Like the it, the our way of working and thinking, our clinical reasoning, our assessment paradigms, our, our understanding of the problem, in my view, should be should be totally contemporary. Should be based on what we know now in the field, uh, and then the content stuff just fits into that, just like. The content we've had for ages, like if like creep, the principle of creep around a tissue, we we fit that into contemporary models. No worries, because that's the nature of science that says we've got to keep updating our theories and our frameworks as as we get theories and we refute them or we get new data. So clinical paradigms that are the same now as they were ten years ago, I believe, should trigger in the health professional who owns them a sense of. I'm falling behind because I'm still using the same frameworks I was using 10 years ago. And knowledge nowadays, I heard a stat yesterday, is doubling every three months. Some great practical tips there, I think, for clinicians, but definitely like a worthwhile investment to understand pain, you know, know how to explain it Um, because it applies to so many different conditions. Like we're not just talking about tendons here, we're talking about all sorts of musculoskeletal medical conditions. I think something that's challenging for clinicians, really valuing that education part of treatment, you kind of feel like you always have to be either, you know, doing something manual or prescribing a new exercise, but we really do need to value that education. Okay, to finish off, I'll take one final message from each of you. Any resources or just takeaway messages for clinicians? Are we allowed to plug a master sessions that's happening in November um, called Less Pain and Better Performance? So that's completely uh, uh, on this stuff with Mark Hutchinson, Darren Burgess, Ebbs is in it, I'm in it, Bronwyn Ackerman, Leanne Rath, uh, Luke Bongiorno, Mick Henry. You know, it's a, a bunch of people who are, I said at the beginning, and Ebbs I think epitomises this of integrating absolute cutting-edge contemporary neuroimmune science with practice. Uh, and in elite settings with application to recreational industrial athletes. So I guess my first bit of advice would be come to that. Less pain, better performance. My, ne- my next piece of advice, I think, is not specific to to athletic populations, but it is uh, that our, our understanding of how the human works gives us scientifically justified hope for people with persisting pain, and we should aim higher. I think it's appropriate to aim higher and and do what we have to do to improve the outcomes of those people because the science is there ready for us to grab it. That'd be my view. That's great. Thank you, Evs. I love it. So I would um, say as a clinician, try and be really thoughtful about every aspect of your interaction So when we're being biopsychosocial, we've got lots of opportunities within our assessment to be really um, 
positive with our language and not nocebic and not using terms that are outdated or might promote fear. Um, words, words matter. Every time we use words, people are updating their understanding of what they think they need to do about their condition. But then if we're doing a lot of, um, you know, treatments that are invasive, you know, the message to the person is your biology needs fixing. And, you know, if that's at a disconnect with the words coming out of our mouth, if we're trying to also explain pain at the same time, I think it's very difficult for the human to know where whether they're coming or going. So I think you've got an opportunity within your session to be genuinely biopsychosocial in what you say, what you do, how you assess and how you support the person. And I think it's an absolute privilege. Um, it's a privileged position to be in. So it's, it's very exciting. Thank you, Lorimer, and thank you, Ebony. And to those listening in, thank you for joining this BJSM podcast and hope you have a great day. 